Good morning once again. If you would turn in your Bibles to um, John chapter 18, we're looking at verses 1 through 14. We're in a sermon series titled, Questions Jesus Asks. Uh, it's on page 904 in your pew Bible, or obviously you can just follow along in your bulletin. Sometimes it's just nice to have your Bible open in case you want to pop backwards or forwards to see something else maybe around the text. Anyway, I'll leave that up to you. This is Palm Sunday, the day we celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and celebrate it we will. But think about this. Some of the most perplexing words you will find in all of Scripture are found in a couple of the Gospels, where we read, And he entered Jerusalem. And he entered Jerusalem. For we know that all the joyful hosannas, hosanna in the highest, will within a few days turn to the words, crucify him, crucify him. And yet we read, and he entered Jerusalem. When we, when we read the Gospels, isn't it true we can find ourselves saying, no, Jesus, don't go there, don't go in. I know what awaits you. Death awaits, Jesus, don't go. And yet we read, and he entered Jerusalem. But Jesus knew this, right? He knew what awaited him. We see it in our passage today when Jesus asks Peter and asks us the question, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. When John had spoken these words, excuse me, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, uh, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let, the, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand 
forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that these words have been kept for us, that this account has been um, laid before us so that we can see um, the obedience of our Savior and delight in him and rejoice in him and experience the life that he has given us. We pray for your Holy Spirit to, to give discernment as we open this text and as we think these things through and as we apply them to our lives. May we be a people who know how much we have been forgiven uh, and know how much our Savior loves us, we pray. Amen. Have you seen the Rob Lowe DirecTV commercials? I'm sure you have, right? They're pretty funny, right? There's uh, two versions of Rob Lowe. The first there's like the really handsome, smart, erudite Rob Lowe. And of course, you know, he subscribes to DirecTV. And, and then there's the other Rob Lowe. And um, he still uses cable. And he's, he's a little messed up. Right? So we'll see, we'll see like the, the creepy Rob Lowe. We'll see the, uh, the meathead Rob Lowe, you know. Uh, and then the most recent one is the poor decision-making Rob Lowe. And so uh, you see him, and I, I guess he had like a really crazy drunken night one night. And he's got, so he's got his name tattooed on his forehead with stars down his cheek, you know. Poor decision making Rob Lowe. And then we see him, you know, uh, he's not able to see his favorite TV show because he is actually uh, loaning his car to some skittish homeless man. And, and then the commercial ends with Rob Lowe joyfully eating a half a sandwich, uh, a tuna sandwich, I guess, that he found uh, on the bus. So poor decision making Rob Lowe. You know, People, when they read the events of Jesus' life leading up to his death, many are left scratching their heads thinking, how could he have, uh, go, go through such poor decision-making process? How could he have come to these decisions? How could he seem to act so foolish? It, it seems like he knew everything that was coming his way. He knew uh, the people were waiting for him. He, he knew that uh, they were wanting to arrest him and kill him. And, and, and yet he seemed to make it really easy for people to do that, right? For, for some, Jesus' death is uh, tragic. They, uh, some unforeseen fate got a hold of him, and he, he made a few bad moves, and he was powerless, and, and therefore he was overcome by, by cruel people. But that's not how Jesus saw it. That's not how the Bible portrays the events of Jesus' life. It's certainly not what we see here in our passage this morning. In our passage, we see that Jesus knew what was coming his way. More than that, he maneuvered in such a way that his, his trial uh, and arrest and trial and crucifixion would actually come about. Jesus went willingly to the cross. But we must go a little further than that. Why is that? You know, many people go to their deaths willingly. But we still consider their deaths to be Poor decisions and, and certainly tragic. Consider the recent crash of the, of the German Wings Flight 9525. The co-pilot evidently wished to end his life, to crash his plane. He did it willingly, and yet his willingness ended in horrible tragedy that no one commends. But the Bible does portray the death of Jesus, and not as a tragedy, but rather as good news. Good news that Jesus willingly entered into. 
And so the point that John wants to make throughout the entire passion story is that Jesus was supremely the master of the entire situation. One commentator, Leon Morris, states, John will not let us miss the point that Jesus was not defeated by wicked people who were too strong for him. He acted in accordance with the will of his heavenly Father. And it was that will that was worked out in the events leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. The cry of the dying Savior, it is finished, points to the completion of a plan that had been worked out, not a disaster that could not be averted. In our passage today, we'll see Jesus living out the great purposeful plan of his Father in heaven. And what we see come to the forefront is this. Jesus' obedience. In verse 11, Jesus says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? More on this cup later, but Jesus in a nutshell is saying, Shall I not go to the cross as my Father has willed it? This morning we must rejoice over the obedience of Christ. For through the obedience of Christ comes the victory that we experience in him. We're going to see the obedience of Christ as we look at three points. First, we're going to look at the plan, uh, excuse me, the place, the, the power, and then the plan. The place, the power, and the plan. Our story opens with Jesus taking his disciples to a special place that they've been to before. Verse 1 tells us that it happened after Jesus had spoken these words. What were these words? Well, Jesus and his disciples were just, they were, they were at the, uh, the upper room. They were celebrating the Last Supper. And in our story then, Jesus leaves the Last Supper without Judas Iscariot, and they leave Jerusalem for a place. Where exactly did they go? Well, they went across the Kidron Valley. Um, other translations say the brook of Kidron. It's, it's a dry gulch, right? Only in the wintertime when the rains come is there ever any water flowing through the valley. This is the Passover. This is spring. It's dry. Um, they, they go through the uh, Kidron Valley, which is just to the east of Jerusalem. And they go to a place. Other gospels help us know that the place is called Gethsemane. It's at the edge of the Mount of Olives. Back in Jesus' day, the, the, mount, the mount there was full of a giant olive tree grove that were harvested. And there was right at the edge of the, of the olive tree uh, 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 a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. It's a very fitting name. For it's there at Gethsemane where in deep prayer the pressure was of the of the events that were to unfold pressed deep upon Jesus Christ he was there praying we don't john doesn't tell us about the prayer he moves quite he moves past that without giving us any detail but the other gospel accounts tell us what took place in the prayer jesus took his disciples to this special place they'd been to before and he had his disciples to to stop uh in the garden and to uh pray for him and then he took james and john and peter and he went just a little bit further in and he's jesus said i'm anguished in my soul uh will you stay awake and pray for me and jesus goes just a little bit further and prays and three times he prays the same thing over and over essentially he says my father 
If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Three times he pleads with his heavenly father, let me not go to the cross. But not as I will, but as you will. We don't know how the father answered Jesus. Perhaps he just didn't say anything. You've experienced that before, right? You cry out to the father and there's no uh, verbal answer in reply. And in that we know what the answer is. However it came, Jesus had his answer. Matthew tells us that Jesus woke the disciples and said, you can sleep later. He said, See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Jesus often talked about that hour. It always seemed to be so distant in the future. But that was not the case. Now, the hour was at hand. That day had come. The time was here and now. In that time of prayer, he realized what must be done. There is no other way. Jesus rose in obedience. He knew he had to drink the cup. But first he had to meet his betrayer. The fact that Judas Iscariot knew where to find Jesus shows us that Jesus was really ultimately in control of the situation. In verse 2 we read, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus purposely went to the place where his betrayer knew he regularly went to. So it should be no shock or surprise that Judas brought the soldiers there. One last detail about the place before moving to the next point. What is it that John calls this place? He calls it a garden. At first you might think it's a coincidence, but there's just too much coincidence for it to be coincidence and for it not to be of some importance. In the first garden, Adam and Eve, in the garden of paradise, Adam disobeyed and brought sin and death into the world. In this garden, a second Adam, that's what Paul refers to Jesus, a, a type or, or, or second Adam who has come. In this garden, he, the second Adam, was obedient. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, as he's talking about the first Adam and the second Adam. He says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The first Adam did not resist temptation. The second Adam, thankfully for us, did resist temptation. The first Adam's disobedience brought sin and death into creation. The second Adam's obedience brought forgiveness and restoration. So that's the place. Jesus went there on purpose. Jesus went there in obedience, knowing that it was there that the plan and purpose of his father would unfold. Now for the power. Judas knew just where to find Jesus. He brings a large contingent of soldiers to arrest Jesus. But what we see is that Jesus is powerfully in control of the circumstances. 
but it doesn't look like that at first. Look at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and, and, and weapons. Try to picture that in your mind's eye. John says a band of soldiers. The Greek word is spera, which, which is a, uh, it's a Greek term for a Roman a cohort. A, a cohort was one-tenth um, of a legion. It was like 600 men. A cohort wasn't always at full strength. Certainly, uh, you know, half or more of the cohort could have remained in Jerusalem uh, um, on watch. But verse 13 tells us that they were led by a captain. So we must assume that this was a, a large contingent. Add to that, not only the secular Romans brought troops, but the religious Jewish council sent their, Roman, uh, sent their temple guards with the Roman soldiers. These would have been the guards from the Sanhedrin, the, the council there. So picture the scene as hundreds of men approach at night, heavenly armed, with dozens, if not hundreds, of lanterns and, and torches. No wonder Jesus knew his betrayer was at hand. Now, some commentators point out it's a little bit confusing. Why would they bring so many torches on a, it? Was, this was the Passover, so we knew it was a, a full moon night. You don't need that many torches. And, and um, why bring so many people? We also knew it was most likely a clear night. Some of you are like, well, maybe there was clouds. Uh, but it was, it was also said that it was a very cold night, which means that, that there, was, there was no clouds in the sky. Why would they bring so many? Well, the officers knew they, in their own mind what Jesus was going to do. They had predicted that as soon as Jesus sees them coming, he's going to do what? Flee. He's going to run. He's going to go hide. They're going to need all those men, all those torches to try to hunt him and his disciples down. They expected Jesus to run, but that's not what John tells us happened. Verse 4, what do we, what do we read? Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? A couple quick points. Jesus knew all that would happen to him. Once again, reinforcing that Jesus wasn't clueless as to what was going on. This wasn't an accident. Jesus was there in the garden waiting for them. And then we read, who came forward? It was Jesus who walked towards them. Jesus came forward. Jesus' power in the situation continues to be seen in what happens next. Here we see that Jesus has power over the posse. I'm sorry, I just had to say that. <laughs> Jesus came forward and asked, whom do you seek? In verse 5 we read, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, John's gospel tells us something other gospels don't tell us. They tell us when, that when Jesus said, I am he, that they all drew back and fell to the ground. What's going on here? Well, it helps to know the Greek words that John recorded. In our English Bibles, we read, I am he. Some Bibles have the he italicized, meaning that, that the word he was inserted there uh, to help kind of make sense of what was being said. But in, in your pew Bible, you will see that there's a, there's a footnote, and it says that, that in the original Greek, it simply says, I am. Other Greek words are ego a me. I am. That's all he said was, I am. And for those of you who have some Bible knowledge, what is that? That's, that's the divine name. 
I am. When Moses was about to go into Egypt, he said, who shall I say send me? What is your name, God? And God says, I am. That's my name. I am. It's the divine name. Tell them, I am sent you. Ego me. Now, is Jesus really using the divine name in this sense? Well, it's possible, quite likely, because early on in, in John's gospel, he did. In John chapter 8, some of the religious rulers were bragging. They were boastful. They were bragging about their heritage, being descendants of Abraham. We are children of Abraham. And then, and then um, here's what Jesus said in response. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego a me. He didn't use the past tense. He is saying, before Abraham existed, I am. <laughs> He's either a madman or the son of God. Truly divine. Now, how did the religious leaders back then take it? Did they go, wow, that's pretty cool, Jesus. That's awesome. You know, before Abraham was, I am. That's great. No. John writes this. They picked up stones to throw at him. But he miraculously escaped. Here in the garden, Jesus invokes the divine name. He is saying, I am is here before you. And they rightly drew back and fell to the ground. Now, come on, these are mostly Roman soldiers. So, so would they really have known this whole divine name, I am thing, and the right response? Probably not, which leaves some commentators scratching their heads. But here's what I think we need to see here. It's best to see that Jesus is powerfully commanding these men to bow before him, even if they don't know fully why. Just as Jesus quieted the waves and the winds with, with just a word, they obeyed and they bowed down before him, so too these people who have come to arrest him, they respond appropriately to the I am so they fall to the ground, and Jesus asked them a second time, verse 7 and 8. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. You know, certainly the order that was given to these troops was not just to arrest Jesus, but to arrest them all. Bring them all in. Bring them all in on trumped-up charges. We're, we're going to find them all guilty. We're going to punish all of them, not just the leader. So Jesus demands, let them go. And John states that this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Is this some Old Testament prophecy? No, Jesus had just said that earlier in the night in John chapter 17, verse 3. He had prayed and he said, none have been lost except the son of destruction, referring to Judas Iscariot. So Jesus Demands, let them go. And don't you find it interesting that, that without even a hint of argument, these soldiers just let them go? That makes sense. They, were, they had direct orders to arrest them. And yet without even an argument, they let them go. It shows us that really, truly, Jesus was powerfully at work in this situation. With just a word of command, the soldiers agree to Jesus' demands. 
I don't think me weird, but when I, when I was thinking of that, I, I thought of the original Star Wars and Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker. Uh, you remember the scene where they, were, uh, they, had, they heard about a Princess Leia and they had to, to go rescue her and uh, they needed to find a ship and a captain to take them to Alderaan and, and then they ended up going to that crazy bar and getting Han Solo, you remember that? Well, before that, they had to actually get into the city and the, and the stormtroopers were on the lookout for some droids and, and for Luke and Obi-Wan and so, and so they get, as Obi-Wan and Luke enter into the, into the city, they get stopped by these stormtroopers. And remember what, what, what uh, Obi-Wan does? He, he, he uses a Jedi mind tricks on them. He, he implants thoughts into their heads. Perhaps you remember what he said. Obi-Wan says to the lead stormtrooper, he says, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And the stormtrooper says, these aren't the droids we're looking for. <laughs> and then uh, you can go about your business. You may go about your business. Move along. Move along. Remember that scene? And then uh, later, Luke Skywalker uh, is, is um, he's amazed. And, he, and he's asking Obi-Wan, I can't understand how, how we got through those stormtroopers. And, and Obi-Wan says, the force can have powerful influence on the weak-minded. I wish I had that power. You guys wish I had that power? You know? <laughs> Officer, let me go. Right? Not that I'd have to use that. I'm just thinking like, of somebody else, maybe. Certainly not my wife. All right. Oh, Darn it. Did I just say that? Okay. All right. Is that what's going on here? Well, yes and no. But Jesus isn't tapping into some mindless energy force. Jesus is demonstrating that he is the I am. And as God, he has power over this posse. Now, let's think this through. Let me ask you this. Could Jesus have not restrained these soldiers? Could Jesus have not somehow gotten away? Of course. This wouldn't be the the first time that a crowd wanted to, to kill him, and yet somehow the Savior snuck through unharmed miraculously. But for Jesus, the hour has now come. And so he says, I am. Let my let these ones go free. He uses his power to preserve his people. While on his way to save their eternal lives, he spares their physical lives. After all, he's got big plans for them. Are you a Christian? God has given you great power in the Holy Spirit. And he has big plans for you. Plans for you to... Use the gifts and the talents and the abilities that, that he has given you to steward over them with great delight. To, for every day to say, the hour is at hand for me to serve my Lord. Let me ask you, is, is, is that how you live? Do you, do you long to use your gifts and pour it out in service to your Lord? Or do you hoard them selfishly? Christ commends us to, to, like him, to say, not my will, but thy will be done. We've seen Jesus' obedience with regards to the place and the power. Now for the plan. 
we see three plans in the remaining verses. Yes, we'll, we'll speed right through them. We see the plan of Peter, the plan of the high priest Caiaphas, and the plan of the father. First, the plan of Peter. First, uh, let's get something straight. Peter loves Jesus. Peter is utterly, completely devoted to his Lord. Earlier in the night, he said, I know these rest of these guys, they're going to bail on you, <laughs> but not me. And, of course, Jesus says, Peter, I love you, but you need to know, the rooster's going to crow twice. By then, you will deny me three times. But so far, we haven't seen that yet. What we see is Peter's living out his promise. He takes out a sword, and he strikes the high priest's servant, a guy named Malchus, and um, cuts off his ear. The other gospel accounts, they tell us that Jesus mercifully, mercifully um, heals Malchus's ear. He restores his ear to him. But, but John just focuses on the rebuke of Peter. Put your sword into its sheath, uh, Jesus says. Now, on the one hand, we can and should praise Peter for his love and for his zeal for the Lord. But on the other hand, we need to see how utterly foolish he was. What was so wrong with what Peter did? I don't know about you. Part of me kind of like wants to applaud Peter, right? To like kind of commend him. It's like, good job, man. You got one in. You know, you, you know a little sucker punch, man. I used to do that to my brother. We would brawl and it was all done like, bam, you know. All right. But let's just consider how badly this could have gone. Imagine how things normally escalate in circumstances like this. Imagine if the soldiers hadn't, had retaliated. What if they drew their swords? What if they attacked Jesus and his disciples and killed them? It's not all that far-fetched to go there, is it? Two things would have resulted. Jesus never would have gone to the cross. His blood would have been on his foolish disciples' hands. Not on Pilate's or the people's. No one would rejoice over the cross. And praise God for the work done on the cross. And there would be no church. For three years, Jesus patiently discipled these men. Yeah, I know a little, they're a little bit dim-witted. But he discipled them to bear his name and the power of the Holy Spirit. If Peter's foolish actions were not mitigated by Jesus' merciful healing of this man, there would be no church. So let's not silently clap for Peter. Thankfully, Jesus powerfully restrained the situation. And his disciples were set free, free to later disown him. Peter models for us how we too can love Christ and yet not honor him or obey him. How we can be zealous for Christ but not follow the Father's plan nor honor his name and how we act and live. John Calvin makes this point. Let us learn that in Peter... Christ is condemning everything that people dare to attempt arbitrarily. This doctrine is especially worth noticing, 
For nothing is more common than under the cloak of zeal to defend everything we do as if it did not matter whether God approved or not. He goes on to say, let us be warned by this striking example to moderate our zeal. And as our unrestrained sinful nature is always eager to attempt more than God commands, let us learn that our zeal will turn out badly whenever we try to do anything contrary to God's word. That's Peter's plan. Let's skip to the plan of the high priest Caiaphas. We see this as in verses 12 through 14. The, the soldiers, they bind up Jesus. They bring him back. They, they bring him first before Annas. He was, was the high priest, and he's the father-in-law of the current high priest Caiaphas. And then John makes this statement that could very easily be overlooked. In verse 14, he says, It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. It was Caiaphas' idea. He was the mastermind of it all. Now, the Greek word translated expedient is the word simphero, and it can mean uh, to, to be advantageous or, or to be better. The religious leaders saw Jesus as a threat to their power and prestige and to their control over the people. They pridefully believed that they were the arbiters of what God wanted for God's people. So Caiaphas said, it is better for one man to die for the people. He couldn't be more wrong. And he couldn't be more right. Do you see the irony? John wants us to. It is better for one man, Jesus, to die for the people. Though not knowing it, and though for damnable purposes, Caiaphas drew up the same plan as God the Father. Not for the plan of the Father. After telling Peter to put away his sword, Jesus proclaims, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus had prayed three times earlier in the night that God would take the cup from him. Is there any other way? Is there any other way, Father, that I I can avoid going to the cross? And God's answer to him was no. And so Jesus, from that point, continued to be resolved to obey the plan of the Father. And the plan of God was that there was a a cup to drink, a a cup that, that... that sends shivers down Jesus' spine. Why? Well, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, most often the cup was a reference, uh, as an imagery of, of the wrath of God. One specific instance is in Psalm 75, verse 8, where we read, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. And he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. What does it mean that all the wicked of the earth shall drink this cup? It means that all will be judged by God. It means that his judgment will come upon all people. His anger will be poured out. Now, before you tune all this out, because your version of God uh, is repulsed by the word wrath, I ask you that you would listen. 
See, chances are you are wrathful and you readily excuse yourself for it. I don't know the circumstances. Perhaps you're driving in your car. This seems to produce a lot of wrath. Driving in your car, someone cuts you off, they offend you in some sort of way, and your face turns red. Steam comes out of your ears. At least that's how they do it in the cartoons. Steam comes out of your ears, and you yell and you scream, and hands go flying, fingers go flying, all of this stuff, right? That's wrath. Chances are, when your wrath manifests, it's not all that pretty. Now, can we at least admit then that we act this way? We can be wrathful people. God, too, demonstrates wrath. But his wrath isn't petty. His wrath isn't arbitrary. His wrath isn't sinful. Do you think that God isn't angered at the sin that's caused by the German wings of plane tragedy? Yes, of course he is. He is angered at that. He has wrath stored up that must be appeased in some sort of way. We all say to him, God, you better pour out your cup in this situation. If you're half as powerful as I want you to be, you better do something. God's wrath is his settled, righteous anger towards sin. God never overreacts, but he does act. And consider this. Consider, if you could, all of the wrath that God rightly has stored up towards all the murderous co-pilots, towards all the swindlers and crooks and abusive husbands and cheating wives and belittling bosses. If wrath could be stored in boxes, it would be miles wide and miles high into the sky. And in those boxes is wrath. It's not just wrath towards evil ones, uh, but towards us, for our, for our selfishness, for our pridefulness, for, for our self-love, for our, for our apathy. It's all in those boxes. But you may say, but can't God just forget about it? Of course not. Evil forgets about sin. Love cannot overlook sin, but it can forgive sin. And for God to forgive sin, his wrath must be satisfied. And not against, like, boxes. Those boxes have owners. Those sins belong to real people. His anger is towards people. And it's a righteous anger. And so human beings must hold these boxes. As Jesus says, one must drink the cup. Here's what the entire Bible is about. You don't have to pick up one and take it home and read it. Here's what it is. Since the first Adam's disobedience, God has from eternity past planned a day when his second son would, would hold the boxes of all the sin and all the wrath that is stored up against humanity, that his own son would undo what the first Adam has done by offering his life and his death on a cross. God's anger was fully poured out on his son. And so consider this. If you're in Christ, there is no anger. 
towards you. There is no second thoughts. So there is no coming back to get you. In Christ, God's righteous anger has been fully satisfied. So that you are now free from all that condemnation. And you've been given Christ's righteousness. That's God's plan. Because check this out. You can't stand before God with your box of junk. But Christ has done that for you if you trust in him. That's why his tragedy is actually good news. That's why we rejoice in his obedience. Because we wouldn't even begin to be arrested ourselves. We would be running down the hill and hiding in the olive trees. Okay, I'm speaking for myself. But I'm not really, am I? Thankfully, the plan of the Father was that His Son would fulfill all that we need in perfect righteousness. And He would take all of the anger of the Father that is well-deserved for us, and it would come upon Him. That's why Jesus said, No, please can the cup pass. Because what he bore, you cannot even begin to fathom. Here's what I know. I deserve God's punishment. And I'm not just talking about for the things I did before I came to know Christ. I'm talking about I deserve God's punishment for the things I still think and do today. What we see in Christ Jesus is that I no longer deserve condemnation because Christ has borne all of that for me. I deserve God's wrath. I should be the one who drinks Mark Middlecoff's cup. You should be the one who drinks, insert your name's cup. But the amazing truth that has gripped me and should grip you is that Jesus drank the cup Mark out for us. He drank the cup for me and for you. Consider this. I will never know what that cup tastes like. I will never know the bitterness, the gall, the anguish of the cup. And neither will you if you're in Christ. Instead, As Paul says, we now drink what? The cup of blessing. We're about ready to come to the Lord's Supper. As we come to the Lord's Supper, may we remember the obedience of our Lord, the power that he exercised to ensure that he would be at the cross for you and for me. Let us rejoice in that. Let us find in him our greatest satisfaction. For he has taken our cup of wrath and given us his cup of blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what these words mean to us. It means that you do not 
treat sin lightly. You are a holy and righteous God. And in your love, though, you have found a way that your anger can be put away. And you've done that on your son. May we be boggled by that afresh today um, and for the rest of the days of our lives. May we long to see our Savior. Uh, May we long for that day when we hear him say to us, I am, the day in which we behold his beauty and his glory. Until then, fill us with your spirit and make us more and more like Christ, we pray. Amen.